You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Hey, if you have your Bible, will you grab that or your Bible app and go with me to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 19 is where we're going to be today. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. It's our gift to you with no strings attached. There are Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or you can grab one on your way out of worship today. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, don't stress about it. We're going to put all the verses on the screen that we'll be studying together so you can track right along with us. Will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Uh, We do this out of reverence and also to show our eagerness. We're ready to hear from the Lord this morning, and here's what he says to us. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, Faith Church, I'm proud of you. You have hung in there. We are on the home stretch here of this study of Revelation, which, we, which we've called Victorious. And uh, this has been a challenging study, right, over the last couple of months. I was talking with my wife, Jamie, this past week, and I was telling her in my 20-plus years of preaching, I'm pretty confident this has been the most demanding, most challenging series I've ever done in terms of the prep and the preaching, the communication of it. And I'm sure from your perspective as a listener, it's been pretty challenging too, right? I was concerned about the complexity of this book, moving into this study. I was concerned about the complexity of it. Well, why then even preach through it, you might ask? Because at Faith Church, we believe in the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. I believe in the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. Listen to me, at the end of the day, what your heart needs most is not my personal ruminations or anecdotes. You need, we need God's Word, the whole counsel of God's Word, and that includes this apocalyptic, prophetic, complex piece of literature that we call Revelation. We need this. What I've tried to do in each week of this series over the past two months is help us get to this simplicity on the other side of the complexity. The simplicity on the other side of complexity. So I don't want you to walk away from this series knowing what every single minor symbol means or stands for, but having no idea how it applies to life today. So instead, what we've done is we've focused on the major symbols of the book, and we've looked at larger literary units that fit together. So sometimes we've studied two or three chapters at a time. We'll do that again today. And from these larger units, we've tried to discern the meaning of the major symbols and how it affects the way we live right now, in our culture, in our time. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a number of symbols. If you're new, if this is your first Sunday with us, know this about the book of Revelation. It is apocalyptic literature, which means it's full of symbols. It's full of these strange, bizarre images And we are to interpret them as symbols, symbolically, not literally. Also know this, Revelation was a first century letter. So as we seek to interpret these symbols, we need to ask, what would have made sense 
to the first century Christians. Revelation can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them, them being the first century Christians. So in our study over the past few months, we haven't found any helicopters. We haven't found any specific references to contemporary 21st century figures. However, we have seen time and time again warnings about idolatrous political powers, earthly kings and kingdoms that seek to draw people away from the Creator God. And we'll see that again today. Now, the last two Sundays in particular, we've seen these symbols. We saw a dragon and his two beasts who work for him. They'll surface again. Last Sunday, we saw seven bowls. And these were not happy bowls full of lucky charms and, you know, cereal milk, that, that sugary goodness that it is. No, these bowls represent the wrath of God being poured out on a world full of evil. The wrath of the holy God being poured out on all who threaten his good and generous reign over his creation. Now today we have a much more lovely image to focus on. And it's the image of marriage. So we could say, in the words of that very annoying, pointy-headed priest in the movie The Princess Bride, marriage is what brings us together today. Now if you know, you know. I don't even have to do the voice because it's echoing in your head right now, isn't it? It's just echoing and it's going to be there all morning long. You're welcome. You're welcome. If you don't know it, you can YouTube it later. Now that we have the image of marriage cemented in our minds, I want us to see in this passage, Revelation 17 to 19, three things we can learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to look through this lens of marriage and see what we can learn. First, we learn something about intimacy. Intimacy. We're going to start in chapter 19 and we're going to work in reverse today. Chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So the first thing we see here in Revelation 19 is this scene of worship. The word hallelujah. This is a worship word. Interestingly, Revelation 19 is the only place in the entire New Testament where the word hallelujah occurs. Did you know that? We sing this word all the time. I raise a hallelujah. It's in our worship songs all the time, but there's only one place in the New Testament where we find this, Revelation 19. And it occurs here four times in a row. So why this fourfold hallelujah? Why this white-hot worship? What has happened? Well, if we read back into chapter 17 and 18, we read about the rise and the fall of Babylon. And we'll come back to what Babylon means, but whatever it means, it's fallen. And that is a reason to give thanks, to give praise, to sing hallelujah. Hallelujah literally means praise Yahweh. Praise God. Praising and then we go on, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Throughout the Bible, we find this language that leads us to the conclusion that somehow, in some way, God loves his people in the same way that a husband loves his bride. The image 
of marriage. Now, why does the Bible communicate that way? What's the point here? Think of it like this. God loves you enough. In his grace, he loves you enough to condescend to your level and to mine. See, what do we need if we're going to understand God? We need human words, human language, human images. And God gives us just that. Here's what he says. He says, imagine the most intimate human relationship, marriage. That's the way I love you. That's the way I love you, Jesus says. Sure, he loves you as his disciple, as his student. Sure, he does. He loves you even as a brother or sister. But even more so, he loves you the way a husband loves his wife. Now, just let that sink in. Understand all that that means. I would do some things for you. I would do many things for my children. I would do anything for my wife. Jesus loves you the way a husband loves his wife. We are the bride of Christ. So we learn something here in Revelation 19 about intimacy, the depth of of Jesus' love for us, his people. Secondly, we learn something about security. Security. The next verse, same chapter. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What exactly is this marriage supper? Well, here we need to understand something about marriage customs in first century Judaism. In those days, there were three steps to the marriage process. There was the engagement, or what we could call betrothal. Then there was a time of separation for preparation. And then finally, there was the time of celebration, the wedding feast itself. Let's think about each one of these briefly. First, the betrothal. So the man would go to the home of his bride-to-be, and he would talk with the father. I remember doing this when I first met Jamie's family years ago. The first century, it still worked this way, but there was a huge difference. In the first century, the husband-to-be would go to his bride-to-be's home to meet with the father to pay him. See, in the first century world, this sounds strange to us today, but in the first century world, there was what was called a price, a, a marriage price. It had to be paid. And at the moment that it was paid, when the husband paid the father or the bride, at that point, they were legally bound to each other. The betrothal period was legally binding. So we read in the Gospels about this, about Joseph and Mary, right? They were in the betrothal phase, and what happened? Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, and so what does he do? He decides to divorce her. Divorce her? Wait a minute, they're not married. Ah, but they are. Legally, they're bound to each other, even in this first stage of the marriage process, because the price has been paid. Now, that's important. Remember that. Now, the second stage of the marriage process was a separation. Even though legally they were bound to each other, they did not yet live together. For a period of one year, they would separate in order to prepare for their life together. The groom would go back to his home, and he would prepare a room for his wife. The wife would spend the next year getting ready, preparing herself, until finally the third stage of the marriage came, the celebration stage, the feast the marriage supper. And this was a party that had no parallel. This wedding feast lasted seven full days. Imagine paying for that. <laughs> now here's why I share the background and here's what I want you to see. 
Jesus loves us like a husband loves his wife. We are betrothed to Jesus right now. We are living in that second stage of the process, the time of separation for preparation. We belong to Jesus. How do we know that? Because the price has been paid. Jesus purchased us with his own blood. He's the lamb. Remember that language that we've seen again and again in the book of Revelation? He's the lion lamb, the one who conquers sin and death by going to the cross and through the cross to resurrection for us. The price has been paid. We are forever secure in our relationship with Jesus. Nothing can change it because the price has been paid. And one day, Jesus will return. One day, we will have a feast like none other. And it won't be a feast that lasts only seven days. It will be a feast that lasts for all of eternity. But in the meantime, we belong to Jesus. And therefore, we must live for him. And that brings us to the third thing we learned in this passage, something about loyalty. Something about loyalty. Now here we need to backtrack to chapter 17 and 18. And a couple more symbols that we need to look at. And we need to get to the simplicity on the other side of the complexity. So let me read it and then we'll unpack it together. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? Let me back it up for a second here and look at what we see. We see a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So this is John, the writer of Revelation. He's receiving a new vision now. He sees a woman, a seductress. She's riding on this beast. The seductress is also referred to as a city, Babylon. Now we need to think back for a minute to what we saw in chapters 12 and 13. In chapters 12 and 13, we met the dragon and the two beasts, remember? And the dragon is our otherworldly adversary, Satan. And how does Satan work in the world today? He works through people, through individuals and institutions. He sends his two beasts out into the world. In Revelation 13, we met those two beasts. The first one represents Rome and all idolatrous political powers that exist in the world today and throughout the entire church age. All earthly kings and kingdoms that seek to displace God, that say to us, I am your savior. I'm the answer to all of your problems. I can provide everything you've been looking for. That was the first beast, idolatrous political powers. The second beast 
was Rome's propaganda machine. And so in our day, in our context, this is that ever-present, complex and ever-present system of influences that are drawing us away from God, away from our Creator, to these idolatrous political powers. So that's what we saw in chapter 13. Now here in chapter 17, we see another beast. But wait, it's not a different beast. It's the same one. It's the first beast from chapter 13. We know that because the description is the same. Seven heads, ten horns. Again, this is a reference to idolatrous political powers that seek to displace the one true God. But in chapter 17, we don't have two beasts. The imagery is different. We have a beast and a seductress riding on the beast, showing her alliance with the beast. Now, what's that all about? This seductress is also referred to as Babylon. In the Old Testament, Babylon is not just a place, not just a city. It also represents a system. The entire ungodly world's system. So here's what I'm getting at. This image of the seductress is very similar to the second beast in Revelation 13. This is the ungodly world's system of influences that seeks to draw us away from God. This seductress, she's social media. She's the shows, the movies we watch. She is school systems, politicians, at times, pastors. She is this web of influences all around us, seeking to entice us, to draw us, to lure us away from God and God's good plan for His creation. Now, if that's true, if that's, in fact, what the seductress stands for, why the different images? Why in chapter 13 do we have two beasts? And then here in chapter 17, we have the beast and the seductress. What's the switching around all about? Get this. In chapter 13, we have two beasts. Why? Because this web of influences, it is beastly. It is a destructive thing. But in chapter 17... We have a beast and a seductress. Why? Because it is beastly, but it will appear beautiful. It'll look good. This seductress, do you notice her description? She looks so good. And she's good at what she does. So good, in fact, that she even gets the attention of the Apostle John. Did you see that in the text? What does John say here at the end? When I saw her, I marveled greatly now this is John the Apostle this is the guy whose courageous commitment to Christ got him exiled to Patmos this is the dude who puts our quiet time to shame because he's having visions of the heavenly throne room this is John and John said I saw her the seductress and I marveled because she was fine man she looked good so the angel has to smack him here. You see that in the text? The angel said, why do, you, why do you marvel, John? Come on, snap out of it, brother. 
She's good. A lot better than we think. She even had John looking. This seductress is anything in the ungodly world's web that seeks to draw us away from God. To draw us to the idolatrous political powers of our day. This is what we're up against as we seek to maintain loyalty, to remain faithful to Jesus. Now, here's the way I want to kind of wrap up. I want to spend a few minutes doing something a bit different. If we are going to be loyal to Jesus in this time of separation for preparation, till the day of his return, if we're going to be loyal to him, we need to know something about the influences of the world. We need an alertness. We need what I'm going to call literacy. So I want to conclude today with a call for cultural literacy. Here's what I mean. There's a verse in chapter 18, verse 4, that says it like this. Then I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Come out of Babylon, my people. In other words, flee the influence of the seductress. Now this doesn't mean that we seek to escape the world altogether. We know that already. Revelation has taught us we don't get an escape hatch. We are here to live in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We are to resist the seductress and participate in God's good plan to redeem his creation. But to do that, to remain faithful to Jesus, to remain loyal to the Lamb, we need an alertness to the ungodly world's web of influences. We need what I'm going to call cultural literacy. And this term is not original with me. It comes from one of my favorite theologians. His name is Kevin Van Hooser. I want you to track with me on this. This will help you if you'll hang with me. All right, give me a few minutes. Can I have five minutes? We good? Thumbs up? Okay. Here's what I mean by cultural literacy. First of all, what is culture? Culture is kind of a difficult word to define, right? What exactly is culture? Culture is what we make of what God made. That's what it is. Culture is what we make of what God made. So it's humans taking this raw material and making something. So in Van Hooser's words, to speak of culture is to speak of the products of everyday life. Culture is the books we read, the films we watch, cars, clothes. Culture is our homes, our offices, and all of the devices and instruments that fill them. So here's what that means. Culture is everywhere, and it's right in front of us, and that's the problem. Because we often don't see what's right in front of us. And this is where Van Hooser is so tremendously helpful. He helps us see what is right in front of us by changing up the vocabulary. In his words, he wants us to think not of cultural products, but of cultural texts. And this is the important part. When we think about products, we just think about something that we consume. Often mindlessly, passively, we just take it in. But when you think of a text, a text has a meaning. It has a message of some sort. A text has to be read. It has to be interpreted. A text requires critical engagement. So here's what Van Hooser is saying. He's saying your iPhone is not a product. It's a text that must be read. And it's not just your iPhone. It's every product of culture. It's your Instagram. It's everything. It's your home, the devices that fill them. 
The clothes you wear, the car you drive, everything is a text that must be read. That ad on Hulu, it's a text that must be read. It's a cultural text. It's a cultural text because every product of the culture has a creator behind it, right? A person or a group that has created that thing. And that means that every cultural text is accompanied by the whisper of its creators. And here's the whisper. You'll know it. It'll sound very familiar to it. Here's the whisper. You ready? Behold, it is very good. That's the whisper. We know it from Genesis, don't we? It's just a knockoff. It's a copy. Behold, it is very good. Here, here, this is the path to the good life. This is what you've been missing. This is what you need. This is what will bring satisfaction and fulfillment to your heart. See, when we understand that, that behind every invention of culture, behind every cultural text is a creator, and we hear the whisper, then that changes everything. It means we can't just passively consume. We must engage, critically engage. So readers of culture will ask some key questions, questions like these. Readers of cultural texts will ask, who created this text? Who's behind it? We'll ask questions like, what does this text mean and how does it work? And most importantly, how is it working on me? If you've deceived yourself into thinking that your iPhone is not working on you, (laughs) wake up. How is it working on me? And then finally, what do its creators want me to believe or do? Into what are they trying to fashion me? Now, when we put all of these cultural texts together, we have what we could call the deep story of our day. Bring all the cultural texts together, figure out what they're all teaching, and we have the deep story. In John's day, the deep story pointed to Rome. We've talked about this. It pointed to Rome as the the sovereign power, the savior, the all-satisfying one. What do you think is our culture's deep story? As you read the cultural texts around you and you bring them together, what's the story? Who or what is the hero or the savior of our day, you think? Here's my stab at it. I'm not a sociologist, so maybe I'm wrong. Here's my stab at it. Paul Tillich is a philosopher, and he says, to understand any culture, we must identify that culture's greatest anxiety. If we want to know a culture, we've got to identify their greatest anxiety. What is our greatest anxiety today? I think it's the fear of being unknown. How else do we explain our obsession with social media? How many likes do I have today? How many friends? How many followers? How else do we explain our obsession with celebrities and fame? I listen to the celebrities. I want to be a celebrity. I want to be an influencer with 100 million followers, subscribers myself. How else do we explain our culture's obsession with sex and perversion of sexuality? Here's who I am. I want everyone to know what I desire. This is the true me. I want you to know me. I think it's the fear of the unknown, being unknown. Or we could say it like this. It's the fear of being unloved. Unloved. This is how the seductress is whispering, and even more than that, luring, enticing our culture. How has she enticed you? 
Search your own heart. Ask yourself that question. How has she enticed you? Maybe she has said to you things like, you will feel so much better when you have this amount of money in the bank. You will feel so much more comfortable, so much more secure when you have this house, this car. So whatever you do, don't give to others. Don't do that. And especially don't give to gospel ministry. Maybe she has seduced you by feeding you the promise you will feel so much better when you leave your spouse. He doesn't love you the way you deserve to be loved. She doesn't treat you the way you deserve to be treated. Maybe she seduced you by feeding you this promise. You will find everything you've been searching for when you embrace that other gender. You'll find everything you've been searching for when you act on those same-sex desires. See, the seductress, she's good. She's so good. She feeds on that fear within us, a fear of being unknown, unloved, searching for something, needing something. You can see in all this the deep story of our culture, of our day. It's the same sort of thing John was up against in his day. How do we fight it? How do we combat it? What we're doing right now. See, every week, every week when we gather for worship like this, when we pray and we sing praises, we study scripture and we celebrate communion, you know what we're doing right now? We are being restoried. We are being, being drawn afresh into the counter story, the gospel story. There's a deep cultural story of our day. There's a seductress at work and she's feeding all sorts of lies promising so much but she can't fulfill the promise read chapter 18 the seductress babylon falls she can't even save herself she has no power to fulfill the promises she makes but there's a deep story of our day the only way to fight it is with the gospel story the counter story being drawn again and again into this story remembering what these elements mean. Friends, this means that you are known. You are loved. You don't have to buy anything. The price has been paid. You don't have to go searching for something. Jesus has found you. You are known. You are loved. That's the gospel story. That's the story we live in. And that's the only way we will be able to be loyal to Jesus until the day of his return. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us sinners. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve your love. And yet we are chosen and cherished. This truth, Jesus, that you love us you love us the way a husband loves his bride. That's an amazing thing. I think at times we're guilty of, of thinking of you in different ways, Lord Jesus. 
it's right to think of you as our master, our Lord. All of that is right. It's biblical. But, but you love us like a husband loves his bride. We are known. We are loved. We are cherished. Oh, work that truth deep into our hearts today. Only then will we be able to resist these other cultural texts, this deep story that exists all around us, this web of influences that seeks to draw us away from you. Lord, I'm sure that each one in this room, young and old, everything in between, we have all been enticed by the seductress at times. She's good. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness. As we prepare to celebrate communion together this morning, this feast of forgiveness that anticipates the great wedding feast, it points us to that great celebration that will happen, Lord Jesus, on the day of your return. Remind us of all that you have done for us, the cross, your death in our place for our sins, the resurrection, your victory over sin and death. This is what is true. This is what is good. This is what is beautiful. Oh, amid all the whispers of our culture, help us to hear the gospel, to live in it, dwell in it, share it with others from generation to generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.